Paul declares, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may become rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And Father, we thank you uh, for a chance again this morning as an act of worship to open the word of God. Lord, as we uh, kind of come to the, to the closure of this letter uh, of 1 Timothy that you've allowed us to study together, Lord, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We pray you just kind of put the finishing touches as it would, Lord, upon this study uh, of a book in the word of God that you would speak to us things by your spirit as always through that which you've already spoken by your spirit here in the written word of God. So Lord, prepare us and speak to us and we ask expectantly in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I certainly think it is wise for a person to take advantage of a financial advisor to help them to manage the money that they have stewardship over. And regardless of whether or not you choose to utilize a human instrument, a professional in that realm to help you with financial management decisions, I think the most important financial advisor who unfortunately often gets overlooked, sadly, is that we should all be taking guidance from God himself. God himself, who is not only the provider of all things, as we'll talk about in our text this morning, and the source of all things, uh, certainly God has a much better pulse on how resources and money is to be well managed according to not only this life, but in connection to the life to come as well. And sadly, some Christians, I think, can tend to default to kind of conforming only to the patterns of this world, and unfortunately, in doing such, they disregard God's financial guidance, of which we find a lot of in the Word of God. Every topic under the sun we find addressed all throughout the Scripture. It's one of the beauties of being able to do what we do, which is just to go through the entirety of the Word of God, covering every book and every verse, because really you just begin to get on God's level the topics that God addresses really in the... Uh, if you would, the priorities and the frequencies that God puts in his word, rather than just jumping around, you see what emphasis God puts on different subjects at different times as you just in context go through the entirety of scripture. And God's word, as we can see, is very clearly not silent regarding money. Now, before we follow the plans and advice of any earthly strategies of humans, even in perhaps the professional realm of finances, above all else, we should all first be listening to and living by God's plan for financial management, which we find in the word of God, because certainly as Christians, we are servants submitted to the rulership of an eternal kingdom. And so, therefore, we should listen to that king and to his wisdom. And so, in these verses, as you can see in our reading this morning, we find really some more guidance on financial management, and I would say to that, God's way. These are verses on financial management, God's way. And often, in many areas, we see that God's ways on lots of different topics are often not our ways, and his thoughts and his ways are often, the Bible says, higher 
than our ways. They come from an eternal vantage point, God's way of thinking with their wisdom and their purpose and their reasoning. Now, you notice our text opens there in verse 17, clearly by speaking to who these verses are specifically giving instruction to. He says there in verse 17 to command, here's who he's writing to, those who are rich in this present age. Now, when you look up the word rich, it's defined as having a great deal of money, assets, and wealth available, or having abundant possessions in one's material wealth. Now, I know you may be quick to want to just dismiss this passage right away, but in a few moments, I'm going to remind you that it applies really to all of us in a very, very pertinent way. But he emphasizes very clearly that he's describing those who are rich, but notice he adds, in this present age. In this present age, that is this current world on earth, which implies what? There is a future and an eternal age that also exists as well. I find that very important in the opening of this section because that understanding that there is this present age, but there also is an age to come, should be really one of the top things as a motivator and one of the foremost things to influence our perspective regarding how we manage our financial resources, to realize there is more than just to eat, drink, and be merry, and then die on this earth, that there is an age to come. And keeping that in mind should be one of the greatest things to help us, that there is more to life than just amassing money, having nice things, indulging luxuries. There is an eternal kingdom, and sadly, some that are rich or more wealthy in this earthly life enjoy material wealth and luxury, which, as we're going to see at the end, he says God gives us all things to enjoy. That's not wrong in and of itself, but sadly, some who do such overlook and never become rich towards God. That is, they never invest into or they don't invest much into their spiritual health and wealth, or into eternal things that make them, in a sense, rich spiritually, and they develop an improper attachment to financial material wealth. Jesus himself spoke about this in Luke chapter 12. I'll read it to you. It says this, that someone called from the crowd saying to Jesus, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus responds to that, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? He didn't want to get involved in the disputing of the father's will and the father's estate. And then he said this in connection to that request. Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. In other words, I'm increasing abundance, greater wealth, greater possessions. So he said, I know, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to that man, you fool. In other words, that was a foolish mindset a foolish mindset. He said, you will die this very night. And then who will get everything that you've worked for? Yes, a person is a fool, Jesus said, to store up earthly wealth, but not have, listen, not have a rich relationship with God. 
Again, Jesus spoke of those things, and no doubt Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing on this subject as well as he's addressing instructions for the local church, as we've talked about all through this letter, because he wants to caution us as the church that we don't fail in regards to this area. So he's addressing those who are rich in this present age, who have a degree of excess or abundance in comparison to others on the earth in regarding to their financial status. And again, let me come back to, before you just tune out on this passage, that's clearly not me. Uh, If there's ever been a Bible study that I've sat in, that this has nothing to do with me, uh, there it is right there. I mean, that is certainly not us, doesn't apply, not instruction. That's for all the rich people. That is not certainly for me. Well, first of all, let me say, most people, by my observation, who tend to be wealthier, also tend to want to dismiss the degree of wealth that they actually experience in life. It is a very common thing to those who have more to kind of focus on the fact that others exist who still have way more money than them, and they kind of justify that as a need to always get a little more or acquire a little extra. In fact, years ago, they asked Rockefeller, how much is enough? Do you remember what he answered? Look at that. See, just a little bit more. (laughs) Someone who is incredibly wealthy, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. And again, this is just such a common tendency in our human nature. We all know the dynamic, if we were to humbly admit it. Most of us tend to default to complaining that we don't have enough, and all of us have been guilty before of tending to kind of cry poor sometimes in a way that if we were really to be realistic at our living standard and how we're doing in life in comparison to most others on this planet— to recognize most of us as Americans, particularly all the more here in the Northeast and all the more then in a Jersey Shore region where we live, are probably doing pretty well in comparison to most other people. In fact, you can do a little bit of research on your own. And certainly I understand wealth and income is relative to various factors like household style and, you know, cost of living in a region. I understand that. But on average, the American worker and the American working family with a median household income is among, listen, the top 5% of the richest people on the planet. The top 5%, which means for most of us, we are richer than 95% of the rest of the world's population. Now, that being said, To a great degree, I think it is fair and somewhat accurate to say that the American church, generically, kind of probably fits pretty good the description here of those who are rich in this present age. In comparison to most of the rest of the body of Christ globally that is on this planet, And so it helps us, I think, to not just so quickly dismiss those verses and say, well, I mean, that's just, that's not for us. That's for only select people. And really to want to take these truths to heart to realize, you know, as an American Christian, I have been blessed with a degree of wealth and affluence and a standard of living in this country that has really got me somewhat from understanding in the top 5% of the wealthiest people on this planet. So it does, I think, beckon us to want to listen to its teaching and how might this apply to me personally. Now, that being said, I agree. In every local congregation among churches, there are always going to be some, even within every local congregation, who have a degree of greater wealth 
than others in that local church. And so therefore, those truths, if they apply, they should become all the more important and all the more pertinent to you if you recognize that may be your status even among a local congregation. Because as personal wealth increases, one thing the Bible teaches, it's a blessing, but it also becomes a greater responsibility. And God's word is very clear to us in regards that. It can cause temptations and distractions even to our relationship with God. And here's why, because extra money, here's what it does. It creates more options, right? People who don't have certain degrees of money, certain things, they're not even an option for them. But when you have excess resources and you have excess money, it opens up options that now you have to choose. Now you have options to do things that maybe you couldn't do before. And so you got to kind of manage that. You have greater responsibilities. So with that comes greater temptations to wrestle with. And sometimes people envy those who are wealthy, not realizing, look, you realize there's, there's additional difficulties they have to manage with that situation. You know, Jesus himself, remember, said to beware, remember he said, of the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches which can choke out the spiritual life. And again, that becomes a challenge that one has to guard against. Now, I want you to notice as we go into these verses very clearly in their reading, first of all, that God does not condemn being wealthy. You don't see that here. God is not condemning being wealthy whatsoever. He simply advises those who are more wealthy how to manage money properly. That's all God does. Again, the Bible teaches us that being wealthy is not wrong or unspiritual. That's a human perception, sometimes a, you know, a self-righteous, critical attitude that we've developed that to be poor is to be spiritual and to be rich is to be carnal and, and ungodly. Well, you don't find that in the scripture. In fact, you see many of individuals in the word of God who are wealthy and who were very godly, who loved the Lord, who God did wonderful things through them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all had a relative degree of substantial wealth. When you look at David and Solomon, Joseph in the book of Genesis, Job, this great stellar character, had tremendous wealth. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament. And God's way of managing earthly wealth and exercising stewardship with it, and here's what we're going to find is the quandary sometimes, it doesn't always line up with conventional, maybe human advice. And I would say, again, pardon the offense, but even some of the advice that's given by financial professionals. Though it may be wonderful, sometimes what God's word says contradicts some of those ideas because God commands us to see money from a divine perspective as a tool for good in this life and for greater good in the life to come. And to see it as something that's just managed with an open hand that we utilize responsibly in his instruction, if you look at it, it does require a degree of faith. The way God tells us to exercise our management of resources, we have to take into consideration God's value system and even at times realize it may contradict human reasoning or even professional advice. And then we have to decide, are we going to go off of God's insight or human advice. And remember, all of these commands that we find in verse 17 through 20, or 17 through 19 here, they really hinge back, if you think of context, if you just glance back to verse 6, this is the root basis this comes from. Remember we studied this not too long ago, verse 6 of the same chapter, now godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he said, verse 7, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we carry nothing out. 
and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content or satisfied. In other words, God says there, and all of us who've had children, as I mentioned that morning when we went through that passage, I watched all three of my daughters be born. None of them came with a suitcase, a purse, nothing. They came out with nothing. You enter into the world with absolutely nothing, and when you depart from this world, you do not take anything with you. And so again, we start with nothing, we end with nothing, we amass in the middle, and we manage things in the middle, but the, the starting way of life and the ending way of life should be the thing that helps us keep balanced so that we maintain proper contentment and a proper perspective, having contentment with bare and basic necessities and being thankful for anything beyond the bare necessities. But he says those, verse 9, who desire to be rich, remember here was the caution, fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which can drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money he says, that's the root of all kinds of evil from which some have even strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So again, it's from that basis that as Paul ties up his thoughts here, he comes back to this now and says, look, these are some things that should be considered if you've got anything beyond bare necessities. <laughs> and there are people on this earth that know Jesus and love Jesus and there are those who don't know Jesus. That's all they have. They live like that. They know nothing different. I remember the first time I was on a mission trip uh, in a, more of a third world environment, and I was with another pastor, uh, and he was uh, you know, telling me the story of when he was down there prior to the time before that he had showed somebody a picture of himself and his, his family in front of the White House in Washington, D.C., and he realized talking through the translator that the people he was speaking to, they thought that was his house. They just assumed because he was an American, as his family was standing out front posing for a picture in front of the white, they just, and he said, they think that's your house. He said, no, 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 tell them that's not my house. But the, in their mindset, you live in America. That's, they just assumed that was his house. And so again, certainly I think these are very applicable things for us. So Paul says, command those who are rich in this present age, most honestly to a degree, any who have somewhat excess in our resources, some degree of a good standard of living. And he says, command them not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So notice a few divine principles come from God here, from his eternal vantage point, where in heaven, the streets are paved, the Bible says, with what? Gold, right? We covet gold on this planet. In heaven, they pave the roads with it. And again, just a totally different vantage point, a different value system, the giver of all wealth, the greatest steward, the wisest investor. God says, let me give some financial insight here, some financial advice. And the first thing he says, let me speak to those who have a little excess resources. And he says, first of all, tell them not to be haughty. The idea is not to be high-minded or arrogant, to see yourself above others, to somehow feel superior or important just because of excess money, that somehow that would mean there's some degree of greater importance. I think the point he's conveying there is that we maintain a humble spirit and never view ourselves as superior in any way in connection to the amount of wealth that we have. And so he says to those who have excess, be careful, guard your heart, maintain a humble spirit, don't view yourself as superior. And sadly, look, an unfortunate temptation 
that can be slipped into with increased wealth can be this area of a subtle degree of pride that can begin to operate in a person with excess wealth where they start doing things like expecting special privileges or perks because they can you know, drop a, a Benjamin or something. And, and then it's almost as if this sense of that I, I deserve some excess privileges and special perks, which is kind of an, an arrogant and unhealthy way to begin to think or it's amazing how money even sometimes can cause a person maybe as their possessions increase, not only feel special, but sometimes not even paying attention, then there starts to be a little bit of flaunting uh, of some of those things and kind of a little bit of subtle advertising, whether it's, you know, all the pictures on social media or just things that are talked about out loud. And there's always things that are said in conversation that continue to indicate the nicer things they have or the nicer things that they're doing. And as that kind of goes on, look, I think the danger behind that is that can be a subtle degree of arrogance where not recognizing doing such and maybe flaunting a little bit too much can be something that really can discourage and cause other people to feel very inferior in connection to you. And we don't want to do that, God says. God says that's not a healthy way to operate. If I can illustrate, if my wife and I, as a married couple, are with a single person, we don't sit there on the couch and cuddle and smooch in front of a single person. That just wouldn't be very nice, right? Because they're thinking, man, I wish I got some of that. Oh, I just, man, I wish I had somebody to cuddle or to smooch or, right? And, and so again, that's the same, in the same way, when people have excess wealth or you have excess resources, you're able to buy nice things or do nice things, I would just say be sensitive, be careful. Because as you just talk about that out loud and how much you just spent on this or how much that costs or you did this or you just there and just, you know, and then you're posting this on me. Oh, look at this trip to Hawaii. And, and, and other people are going, man, my life's horrible. And, and again, there's almost a degree of they feel very inferior and you seem superior. And so God says, be careful of that. Because that can almost be a thing where there's a degree of pride connected to that. And I'll tell you, and maybe some of you can assent to this, to me there is nothing more wonderful, and I have friends, you have friends, to have a friend or know someone who is substantially maybe well-off and, and very you know, wealthy to a degree, and yet you would not easily know that by the way they function and operate. And what a refreshing thing to be with someone who has wealth, but yet they, they just operate in a way where you would not know it. They don't advertise it. In fact, they're almost overly intentional to just be careful, to just kind of you know, keep things quiet and treat everybody the same and interact. And boy, that's refreshing. And I think that's God, really his heart of more what we would be sensitive to in regards to this. The second thing he mentions in verse 17, to those who have excess wealth or greater riches, is he says not to trust in uncertain riches. That is your excess money. So Timothy, tell people don't trust in their money because he says money is an unreliable thing. It really is. One translation renders this, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of your riches. So what does that look like? Maybe a high-paying job with a good salary. Maybe a substantial amount of excess money in a bank account or a, a retirement portfolio. The point here is don't rely upon your current financial resources for personal security. 
Let me say that again. God's word says don't rely on your current financial resources for personal security. Now, again, money does have a strange way of making human beings feel secure. A lot of what's proposed in financial management advice, and look, I'm not discounting that there is some degree of security that goes along with managing money wisely, you know, doing things maybe to save money and establish a retirement nest. There's nothing wrong with those things those things. But I think the danger becomes when there is such an emphasis placed upon that, that people actually believe that you can create complete security for yourself, that you can create enough money or enough wealth to where you are secure, you are safe, don't worry about it, everything is okay. And the reality is that's a false security, God would say from heaven's vantage point. God would say that is not truly accurate to improperly think there's a guarantee no matter how much financial resources are available to help or use because the reality is just take a walk through human history or talk to a few people who have at one time had money and then suffered great loss of money and they will gladly tell you there is absolutely no guarantees when it comes to money. There really is not. No job, no income, no money in one's possession is 100% secure. And God just wants us to know that. He just wants us to hear that reality, that it's unreliable and uncertain to a degree. Because what can happen? A loss of a really good job. You can lose that really good job. Something can happen. There can be things like an economic crash, right? A, a fire, a disaster, a theft, maybe a bad business decision or a few bad economic choices. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize this thing that seems so secure dissipates or disappears. And so God just says, be careful. Don't ever let your heart begin to trust, rely upon as security, uncertain riches, things that are not completely reliable. God advises us to not let ourselves to do that. Psalm 62 says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. If they increase, don't set your heart on them. One of the Proverbs we saw not too long ago, we've been going through Proverbs on Wednesday night, says this, Proverbs 23 says this, will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make wings they fly away like an eagle. I mean, is that just how God describes that? Riches, he says, they all come with wings attached to them. And just like an eagle can just up and fly away, cannot every one of us to some degree recognize that reality where wealth was there and then something in the house breaks? There it goes. Right? I've said from the pulpit before, money talks, mine does yours. It says goodbye. That's one of the things it says often to us. And he says, look, this can happen lots of different ways. So understanding that money is unreliable and uncertain, it's not meant to freak us out. That's not what, I don't think that's what God's heart is here. I don't think God's trying to make us feel, oh, no, money's uncertain, and, and I've tried to save and be a good steward or invest for my retirement. or Oh, no, and, and put us into panic. I guess I better go get another job and, and make us. I don't think that's what God's wanting us to do. I think what God is doing is just saying, look, 
I just want you to keep a right perspective. I just want you to have a reality check. Don't put all of your security and reliability in money, which is completely an uncertain thing. You know, perhaps in some way, it's a good thing to evaluate if you found yourself doing that a little bit. So where then should our trust be for financial security? Well, the same verse tells us, don't trust in uncertain riches, but what does he say? Instead, trust in the certainty of a living God. Trust in God. That's where our confidence should be for security and safety. Trust in a God who was 100% reliable. He's the rock of ages. He's been through every economic downturn. God is recession-proof. He's recession-proof. There's nothing that's going to hinder the almighty God as the source and provider and sustainer of all life. Despite what happens in earthly experiences, God always remains constant. And he's a father who always is reliable and comes through and he's sufficient to help. The point I think Paul's trying to convey is realize and constantly remember God is our source of provision. To realize that and always keep remembering, wait a minute, it's not the job, it's not the investment. God is the source of our provision. He is the one ultimately that we should be relying upon and trusting upon. He's the owner and possessor of all the Bible says, and he can miraculously create and sustain anything as needed. Psalm chapter 50 describes God saying, the world is mine and all that's in the world. God says, I own it all, and I can channel it and send it around however I need to because he owns and controls everything as the source and creator and sustainer. And God needs nothing, and God can supply anything in any way he sees fit at any time. You know, Genesis 22, one of the names of God, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord our provider. The Lord, our provider. It's one of the titles that he takes to himself. And God's word is filled with indications of God's faithfulness to care for and to provide for not only all of his creation, but particularly for the crown of his creation, which is human beings. All throughout the word of God. In the book of Exodus, we find God supplying miraculous bread in the wilderness to the children of Israel. Their only responsibility was go out every day, do their simple part practically, and pick it up. But who was the one supplying that bread from heaven that matter? God was in the wilderness. God was making the provision. They just had to go out and do their part to gather in what God was provided. Forty years. Remember, 40 years, their clothes and their shoes never wore out in the wilderness. What parent would not have loved that? Right? I mean, I thought it was impressive that Hudson still had Zach's sneakers on from 25 years ago. I mean, that was pretty impressive. But, but imagine that, never needing new clothes. But again, what's, God can provide also by what? Preserving things, sustaining things. That vehicle that runs on a thread, God can keep it going. Oh, I don't got money for a new vehicle. God, I know, the way I'm going to provide is you're just going to keep driving that clunker because I'll keep it going for you. God's provision. It's God's provision sometimes. And the word of God is filled with such examples. Deuteronomy chapter 8 cautions us never to forget God, listen, particularly in time of prosperity. And God cautions Israel and his people. He says, in time of prosperity, listen, do not say in your heart, God said, my power 
and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. I've just been such a good businessman. I've just been so strategic and, and, and so you know, successful. God says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And God says, yeah, you've gotten wealth, but don't forget, I gave you those opportunities. I gave you the strategic ideas. I gave you the opportunity. God says, I'm the one that gives power to create and generate wealth. And he just wants us to recognize that. I love stories like in 2 Kings chapter 4, where God supplies a widow's oil continually, and it just keeps lasting and lasting. He tells her, go gather jars. She's got a little bit of oil left, and she just keeps pouring. And it just, what happens? God just keeps multiplying and multiplying and multiplying the oil to where it just continues to just expand and expand. The little bit she had just keeps multiplying and multiplying. And then God says, okay, now sell that, pay off your debts, and live off the rest. There's good financial advice again. God says, pay off your debts. Good financial advice. That's a key to getting ahead financially. First Kings chapter 17, Elijah is there as a servant of the Lord. God sends him to a location where it was going to be really difficult. He sends him to a, a, a brook that's drying up. So God sends him on a mission. He's like, I want you to go do this, and I want you to basically go put yourself at financial risk. And then what does God do? It says that God every day by ravens, which were unclean birds, kept dropping off meat and bread to Elijah every day. In the morning and the evening. I mean, you probably got on a first name basis with this bird. Hey, Bob, how's it going? Dropping off every day, just birds. God was literally using birds to come bring food out to his servant. Again, can God provide in unique ways? He absolutely can. He has amazing ways that he can provide for us. He can make a whole army flee and all the food's left behind. And then they go in and they take all the spoils in the camp. Psalm 37, David says, reflecting back as an older man upon all his years of life, he says, you know, I've been young once and I'm getting old now. And David said, but I know this, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen God's kids having to beg for bread. Boy, if some Christian ministries would read that Bible verse. He says, I've, I've never seen God's kid having to beg. They don't have to beg because their father takes care of them. And again, just that awareness again. Jesus himself said, don't worry about what you'll eat or you'll wear. Your father knows what you need. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As we're seeking the kingdom of God first, God adds into our lives the things that we need materially, financially, if we don't invert our priorities. I love the story in Matthew 17 where Peter is facing a tax bill. That's pertinent, couldn't it? Maybe, I don't know. In Matthew 17, he's got a tax bill, and Jesus tells Peter, here's what I want you to do. Go down to the sea, throw in your hook. The first fish that you take out, there'll be money in its mouth. Go pay the tax bill. To me, what a beautiful example, because here's, here's how God provided for Peter. Peter, you got a bill. What am I going to do, Lord? Go work. Imagine that idea. <laughs> Peter, I'm going to provide for you. What do I do, Lord? What are you going to do? You, five loaves and two fish again? Not this time, Peter. You're a fisherman, right? Yeah. You know how to fish, right? Yeah. Go work. And when you go work, there'll be money through that work, and that will be my provision <laughs> to pay your bills. Again, God can provide in so many ways. That's why Philippians chapter 4 says, my God shall supply all your need 
according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. The truth of God as a provider is weaved and reiterated all throughout the word of God, all throughout the scriptures, that we would look to God expectantly to supply our needs, that when we recognize we have need, we would always ask God and believe that God will come through to provide. And it is God's determination how he wants to deliver the provision. It may come through an opportunity to work. It may come through a second opportunity to work a secondary job. It may come through a miraculous gift of someone who just graciously puts a, a check in your mailbox or God moves on their heart to, and, and tells them you have a need and God provides in a miraculous way and God can work in those ways. There are so many ways God can cause what we have to be sustained or preserved, to last longer. And, and God has all these wonderful ways. Again, if you think of the provision of Elijah out at the brook Cherith, God supplied the meat and the bread. What was the bird? The delivery source that God chose. And God can find whatever delivery source he wants to bring about provision, but it's ultimately his provision, and that's where we should be trusting. And I'll tell you, it is awesome to see the ways that God will do this for us as his people, and I could spend lots of time this morning giving personal testimonies to the ways that I have watched God provide for me, provide for my family in unique and different ways over the years of our married and family life, but I tell you, just it's amazing. I tell you, give God a chance. Give God a chance and learn to see God as your provider and recognize how those things happen. I mean, it's just astonishing the various ways that if we truly see God as our provider, he can create unique ways to bring that about. You notice as he talks about what God's provision here, the final thing he tells us in verse 17, which I think is helpful when one experiences wealth, and that would be this, to understand it's okay to enjoy some degree of earthly pleasure as part of God's blessing. Notice, God's not a killjoy. Again, God doesn't condemn the wealthy. It literally says right there in the word of God, look at it. He says, don't trust in uncertain riches, trust in the living God. He's the provider. And then he says of God as a provider, he gives us richly, the idea is abundantly, all things to, it's right in my Bible, enjoy, enjoy. In other words, God is saying, I abundantly supply and provide at times not only what is needed, but even excess beyond that for your enjoyment, for you to be able to have pleasure and fulfillment. Take note, God is a kind and loving father wanting to bless his children, gives good things and pleasant experiences, and God is not upset if we find enjoyment in this life. It's not as if somehow God is saying, look, only the bare minimum, that's it. He says right there, God gives us things to enjoy. And so simple, basic things of life, I think to some degree, we should learn to do a better job of just enjoying even the bare necessities, the very simple things. You know, we talk about simple pleasures, and I don't know about you, simple pleasures sometimes are some of the greatest and most enjoyable earthly experiences. I mean, again, think of us as Americans, the fact that we live in homes with heat and, and, and air conditioning. And we have plumbing. Go somewhere where there's not one time. Well, you'll love plumbing. You will love plumbing. The simple things. And God says, these are for you to enjoy, to be grateful, to be appreciative of just the simplest of things. That's why Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? Again, as parents, what do we want? We like to bless our kids. We're not going to outparent God. 
We like to bless our kids, and we spend money to do things to give our kids enjoyment and fun and, and pleasure, and, and God is a good father. And he doesn't have an issue. Life's not just something to endure. It's something in balance to be enjoyed as well. And look, if you experience a degree of excess wealth and God allows you to prosper and to experience things at a higher living status, that's not something you should have to feel guilty about. You don't have to feel guilty about enjoying something or being able to take a nice vacation or being able to have a boat or something. I mean, if that's something God's blessed you... God's blessing. Thank you, God. Wow, thank you for letting me enjoy your kindness, Lord. I mean, I don't, I don't deserve anything, but yet you, you've given me these other things to enjoy and the, the freedom and excess to be able to enjoy certain things. And again, I think we have to be very careful. We don't want to give this impression that somehow it's wrong to have fun on earth and, and true Christians wouldn't do that. They should give away all their money and live in poverty. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. He says, God gives us abundantly things for our enjoyment to be able to indulge a bit of personal enjoyment on this earth is not wrong if our heart is appreciative unto God. God, thank you that I get to live and enjoy these things. Thank you that I have resources to do such things. We should just be grateful that God wants us to enjoy such. Well, look, he goes on, verse 18, to kind of give some balance and connection to these things. He says to those, again, who have excess, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, and willing to share. So notice, those with more should seek to use their resources, the Bible says, and the position afforded to them by having excess financial resources circumstantially to engage, he says, in doing good works. That is using their time and maybe the opportunity they have to a greater degree because sometimes when you have excess resources and in your position financially, you may be someone who, unlike someone else, who is burning the candle at both ends, preoccupied in working constantly just to keep their bills paid. And God says, you've got a little bit more freedom because you've got a little bit more financial flexibility. So God says, use that time to do some good things. You've got a little additional time. Maybe you don't have to work as many hours. Maybe you have money to be able to do certain good works of Christian service. And he says, use those resources to do good works in a way that God's freed you up to be able to. See it as an opportunity to be able to be a more helpful person with acts of service and doing things maybe that others wouldn't have the freedom to do, or maybe they couldn't afford to do those things. But he says, you use your resources in that way. And he says also, those with more wealth should be, he says, ready to give and willing to share. Notice the way that's described. Giving and sharing, obviously what he's talking about there is, you know, extending financial resources. And he uses two words, ready to give and share and willing. The idea is having a generous spirit where you say, you know what, Lord, you've put me in a position that I should have a little bit more of a generous attitude because I have the, the freedom to be a more generous person. So help me to always be ready, Lord. The idea is help me to be on the lookout for things maybe you might show me, ways that I can be ready to step into a situation financially, maybe to help in some way, to you know, be engaged in missions work, or to you know, help some ministry endeavor, or maybe a family that's got a genuine financial hardship. Lord, help me to always be ready, looking for what you want to show me, because you've put me in a position where I can exercise the gift of giving, maybe to a greater degree. 
And he says, not only being ready to give, but he says also willing, willing to share. It's one thing to talk about giving. It's another thing to do it. <laughs> so he says, actually being willing to go like this. And actually let it go. And actually be willing to release it in faith and trust that God is directing you to do such. Look, the Bible, folks, we know teaches all of us, everybody, the poorest of poor and the richest of rich, the Bible teaches that all people as Christians should be giving financially in proportion to our income. When you read the word of God as a whole, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, other passages, we find a few clear principles that every Christian should be a giver. We should be doing it routinely. The Bible tells us that we should be doing it. The idea is, is with a degree of, of systematic giving, not just sporadic not just when we feel guilty once in a while or every once in a while we feel pressured. No, no. He says we should be giving consistently with some routineness, proportionally in connection to what our condition is circumstantially and financially that we pray about and not with a reluctant attitude. Oh, I got to give how much or what percent? So God says, no, you determine in your heart, you pray, think it through, and you give in a way systematically what proportion or amount you feel God's directing you to do it as an act of worship to honor God. Every Christian should be doing that. That's healthy Christianity, recognizing God as our provider and participating in the work of the kingdom of God. But God says here, emphasizing all the more if someone's in a wealthy status, they should be taking that to another level because they have the freedom to do that. They have a higher degree of threshold to be able to be more willing to give and more ready to share, and that can be done in simple and small forms or in amazing and large ways. The most important thing is just that it's being done, God would say, is that we're actually walking in that. Again, we want to be careful of that normal human tendency when wealth increases, typically human nature is to just increase our standard of living, and that may not always be God's design. Proverbs chapter 11 says it this way, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds more than is right and comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Again, the Bible in the New Testament says whenever we have opportunity, we should always be looking for occasions to do good, especially to the family of God. I love the story in Acts chapter 4 where the wealthy among the early church, literally it says, were selling their additional homes and their lands and were bringing money to the house of God to help those who were in less fortunate situations. And it's just a beautiful picture of the generosity of the spirit of those who were wealthy in the early church there. And the Bible tells us that in and of itself is an act of worship. Hebrews 13 says, don't forget to do good and share for with such sacrifices... God is well-pleased. Again, it's another way that as a Christian, we make a sacrifice and God says, I'm pleased with you because I know that was a sacrifice for you to do that. And God says it's something that's pleasing to him. It's an actual act of worship when we do such. Well, as Paul concludes verse 19, he kind of wraps up by showing us, I'll use a financial term, return on investment. He says, here's return on investment if you do such, sharing of your wealth God's entrusted you with. He says, you are, verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So as we use the money God entrusts us to manage, sharing it 
at times giving it in ways to help kingdom work or to bless someone or to help out somebody in a financial hardship or to invest in ministry things. He says the wonderful thing is this, is as you do that, you reap greater eternal reward. He says here, somehow, and I can't explain it perfectly, somehow it will, if I could use the term, enrich our eternal experience to a greater degree. He says right there, doing such, we are storing up for ourselves a good foundation for the time to come. Now, exactly how that plays out and works, I'm not certain, but I just believe this. God doesn't lie. And somehow God says, you are enriching your eternal experience when you serve the Lord, when you give resources for the Lord. And where did Paul get this idea from? He got it right from God. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 6? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. And then Jesus added, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus taught a fundamental principle, and that is this. Whatever we invest into and wherever we're accumulating treasure, it will control our heart desires. The truth of the matter is our heart will always follow where we spend our money. If you are someone who invests in some ways, don't tell me that your heart is not connected to paying attention to your investments because you're investing there. If you had never invested a penny your entire life, you probably don't go check what's going on in that realm, right? Because you're not invested there. And Jesus says, wherever our treasure is, our heart will be also. Our heart will always follow what we do with our financial resources. Whatever we invest in will direct our heart. And look, that brings us to this as a kind of a concluding landing point for this, folks. One of the reasons it's good for all of us as human beings to give is it's helpful for our own heart because one of the greatest antidotes for human greed is to give. And God understands that. Look, I can tell you at the end of a Bible study like this, God does not need our money as human beings. God is the provider. God is the source of all. But God asks us as his children to not only reflect him as givers, but God asks us as, our, as his children to give because God's trying to raise kids. He's not trying to raise money. He's trying to raise children to not be selfish, greedy, materialistic little human beings who have this limited view that everything's about fun in the sun and life on this earth. And God says, no, no, I don't want you to become like that. So God says, to help you, I'm asking you, one of the best ways to detach your heart from this earth and to help your heart stay connected to eternity and things that are spiritual is God says, I'm asking you to channel your resources because it'll be one of the best things to help you in that. It becomes something that assists all of us. Look, this morning, have you lost some connection to the realities of eternal life? One of, not the only, but one of the areas sometimes to adjust is to pay attention to how you manage your resources, God would say. And let me say in conclusion this morning, there are three things on, uh, in existence, I'm going to say on this, are three things that exist that are eternal. God, his word, and human beings. Those are the only three things that will last forever. God, his word, 
and human beings. Those should be the things that we invest all that we have, our time, talent, energy, and resources into, because those will be the things that we have the greatest return on.